Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Well, good morning, everyone. Last week, as we finished... As Matt finished up his sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, we saw Jesus commissioning his own disciples to go out and make more disciples. And while his followers were saddened over the fact that Jesus was about to depart, Jesus assures them that he will be with them always. And it would actually be to their benefit that he was departing, because afterwards he would send his helper to them. And we know from the other Gospels what happens. Jesus ascends, and his disciples are left to continue the work. And we recognize that these events happen because they're recorded for us in the Gospels. But as we close the page on Matthew's Gospel, or any of the other three Gospels, we're left wondering how these other events turned out. Did Jesus make good on his promise and send his Holy Spirit as a helper? Did the disciples take up the charge and fulfill the Great Commission? What's going to happen to Christ's church? Well, the fact that we're all gathered here some 2,000 years removed from Jesus' ascension helps answer some of those questions, but we're also given many more details of the events that transpired after Jesus' bodily departure from earth. We have the entirety of the New Testament that tells us about the Spirit being given, disciples being made, believers being baptized, and obedience being taught. And today, our text, the letter to the church in Philippi, picks up about 30 years removed from Jesus' ascension. One of God's apostles, Paul, had specifically been set apart to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And as we know, Paul was faithful to that call. On his first missionary journey, he's sent by the Holy Spirit to Macedonia. And upon his arrival there, he shares the gospel and a church is planted. And if we fast forward 10 to 15 years from this church plant, we arrive at the writing of Philippians, which is the text that we find ourselves in this morning. And from this letter, we know that the church in Philippi was not only surviving amongst harsh persecution, it was actually thriving. Paul commends them for a job well done, and he encourages them to keep up the good work and to keep on rejoicing. And he echoes this call to rejoice in the Lord always, all throughout the book of Philippians. And it's undoubtedly the main theme of his letter. But near the end of chapter 1, he also reveals a second major theme, a call to unity. He knows that they're already facing persecution and that the pressure is going to continue to increase. And he knows that this pressure will either cause them to break apart or draw closer than they have ever drawn closer before. So he cites an example that have been very close to the heart's and minds of the members of the church in Philippi. He calls to mind the Roman phalanx, which is a military formation where the men draw so close together that they no longer need to worry about themselves because they know that the person to their right, left, front, and back has got them covered. One act of selflessness, one single breach would affect the whole unit and lead to its defeat. And Paul knows that this level of selflessness and unity within the church cannot be attained by any amount of human planning, willpower, or work. 
yet he still calls them to it. And he points them to the one and only person that makes this possible, the person of Jesus Christ. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And last year, our Advent series was spent studying these verses. I realize it's been a long time. Hopefully this helps get us back up to speed. Um, and our text this morning that we're going to be studying is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. So, should already be there. Uh, follow along. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And we'll be looking at this section of text as a two-part series over the next two weeks. This morning we'll be focusing on verses 12 and 13. And in these two verses, we get an in-depth look into both the method and the means of which we are to work out our salvation. Paul has already seen God work this salvation into his own life, and now he's eager to share these same truths with the Philippians. And as he's writing this letter, he's still imprisoned, but he is hopeful and confident that he will be set free and that he will once again get to see his friends in Philippi. But he needs to make sure that they know their salvation and their sanctification are not dependent upon him, but upon Christ. Whether Paul is present or remains absent does not add any bearing on their ability to continue growing in their Christian walk. He did not start the good work in them, nor can he bring it to completion. Their salvation was made possible by the work of Jesus Christ— the gospel seed was only to take, able to take root because of the work of the Holy Spirit and their continued process of sanctification can only be achieved because God is at work in them. God has done all of the heavy lifting, but the Philippians and each of us still have a vital role to play. We must obey. And not some half-hearted form of obedience, but the same type of obedience that Christ exemplified in his incarnation. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, if we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, if we are to follow after the humble example of our Savior, 
if we want to make it to the finish line, then we must obey. And as we can see in our text, it's God who is at work in us, yet we are still instructed to work out our own salvation. And before we discuss what this means or how we go about it, we first need to make sure that we understand what this instruction is not. It's not a command to work towards or work for your salvation. Because if we're not careful, we can get caught up into thinking that we have been called to or are actually capable of earning or paying back our salvation through our works, neither of which are possible. Instead, what we see in our text is a command to work out what God has already worked in. He was at work in our lives, plowing, tilling, and softening our hearts so that the gospel seed which was planted in us might be able to take root and start to grow. It's only through the power of his Holy Spirit that we can grasp and understand that we are spiritually dead, full of sin, and in need of a Savior. And it's only through the person of Jesus Christ that we can be saved. Yet, even in this first stage of salvation, we begin to see the mysterious interplay that happens between us and God. He has worked all of this stuff in, but we still have a role to play. We must confess and we must believe. Both parties are at work at the onset of our salvation, and both parties remain at work through the continued work of our salvation and sanctification. And the thrust of this passage this morning is to work out our salvation in its continual sense. But in order to do this in the present, you must have already personally experienced God's first act of salvation in the past. In one of his sermons on this passage, John MacArthur says this in regards to our salvation. <clears throat> See, salvation comes in three dimensions, past, present, and future. Those of us who are Christians have been saved. There was a moment in time in which we were translated out of darkness into light. We left the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We went from death to life. We went from sin to righteousness. We went from being children of the devil to being children of God. We were saved. Our souls were saved. We were made new creations. Yet there is also a sense in which we are being saved right now. We're in the process of being saved. What does that mean? That he is continually cleansing us from all sin. It isn't just a past act with no future implications. It's an ongoing thing. And as we'll see in just a few weeks in our study of Philippians, Paul talks about the same thing in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, as he reflects on this in his own life. He says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, in reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We can see already from this morning's text that when Paul says to work out your salvation, he does not mean that you must work to gain or pay off your salvation. If that question was echoing in your head, hopefully it's been answered. The next question we need to ask ourselves is, are we called to work this out on an individual or a corporate level? 
And we see in verse 12 that the NASB says, work out your salvation. But in the English Standard Version, American Standard Version, and King James Version, we see the instruction to work out your own salvation. Well, which one is it? And we know that the original Greek word behind our English word is plural. And this makes sense as we look back and read the preceding pages of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 1, we see in his introduction to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Verse 3, I thank my God in remembrance of you, always offering prayer and my every joy for you all. Verse 19, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. And verse 25 of chapter 1, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. And as we move on to chapter 2, we see the same thing. We pick up in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And when we examine this letter's context in its entirety, it clearly reveals that this morning's text is addressed to the church as a whole, and therefore its instructions have a corporate view in mind. And as we continue to progress, we'll see that its scope remains that way as well. So what we have here is Paul telling the church at Philippi, which should be a redeemed body of believers who have gathered to worship their Savior, that they need to work out their salvation. As a church, they should be working encouraging, urging, prodding, and exhorting each other along in their salvation. They should be growing in holiness, moving further away from sin, and progressing in their sanctification. This should be done corporately. But there will be zero ground gained if no one first looks internally to themselves. The team doesn't improve by everyone pointing their finger at the person next to them commanding that they must pick up the slack. No, it must start with you. The church can only corporately work out their salvation when everyone individually has committed themselves to working out their own salvation. It must be personal. Look look around, friends, and know that the person to your left and to your right cannot work in you the confession that must happen to bring about your salvation. Your spouse can't save you. Your parents can't save you. Your good deeds can't save you. Your wealth, importance, or status cannot save you. Sorry to say, but your presence here this morning isn't going to save you. Only the person of Jesus Christ can save you. But in order to be brought into his salvation, you must confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You must do this. No one else can do this for you. And furthermore, no one but you can commit to voting your life to and following the Lord each and every moment of each and every day. You must fight against your sin and temptations. You must prioritize God over everything in your life. You must draw near to him daily through his word and through prayer so that you'll be given the strength to live one more day for him and his kingdom and one less day for yourself, and your own kingdom. Others can point you in the right direction and encourage you to do so, 
but no one else can work out your salvation for you. Only you can do that. And so far, we've seen in this morning's text that we're to work out our salvation in its continual and present sense. And now, on to what it means to work it out. And the word that's used here means to affect, to produce, to bring about as a result, to realize in practice, or to mold into fitness. And the same word is used in 2 Corinthians 4.17, which says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Another example is Romans 5.3. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And what we're seeing from this is that we don't just receive God's grace and salvation and then bury it deep within us. No, if it's truly been worked in by God, then it will also be worked out by us. No longer enslaved and characterized by our past sins, if we have indeed been washed, sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If this is true, then our lives, our actions, and our words will outwardly confirm what has already taken place within. We clearly see this in the life of David. In Psalm chapter 40, verses 8 through 10, he says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. In church, we must remember that our salvation is not something that is to remain idle. It isn't sitting in a glass case labeled break in case of emergency. No, it's something that we're to put into practice. We're to work out what God has already worked in. And I realize that this concept is a bit of a paradox. Uh, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the interplay between God's equipping and our outworking. So to better help us understand, I have an example that hopefully helps. Most of you know that over the last 14 years, I've been co-owner in my own business in the New Melford area. And during that period of time, myself and my business partner have employed a considerable number of people. Most of those that have been under our employ have gone through some form of trial period before we officially hire them. But there have been a few that we've hired sight unseen simply based off of their resume. And in those cases, just imagine with me that after hiring an individual, Monday comes around and the person just doesn't show up. Call to make sure everything is all right, and the person responds by saying, yeah, everything's good. I just figured I already got the job, so why do I need to show up to work? He continues by saying, you gave me the position. You declared me to be your employee, so now I don't need to do anything because the job is already mine. Fortunately, this has never happened, Um, but that would have been that guy's first and last day. I'm not going to hire someone and pay them to do absolutely nothing because it cost me something to employ them, and I hired them to fulfill a purpose. And likewise, it costs Christ dearly to make this thing called salvation possible, and he redeemed us for a purpose. 
He didn't save us so we could just coast out the rest of our lives and float our way on up into heaven. Now, we have a job to do, but the difference is, on our own, we're completely incapable of carrying out the fulfillments of this job. We're only qualified and we're only capable because of Christ. And we aren't saved based off of our good works or our resume, for in God's accounting, our list of good deeds would account to zero, and our resume would say, wretched sinner. We're only saved because of his grace. But know this, friends, if you have indeed been called out to salvation, then you are also called to work out your salvation. If God has worked it in, then you must work it out. And as we return to our text, we also see the posture that we are to be in as we work out our salvation. Verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And before we move any further, we need to, once again, make sure that we understand what this is not referencing. This is not saying that every moment of every day, we need to be anxious and concerned that we're going to lose our salvation. We shouldn't be going about doing Christ's work like civilians who have just been recruited to sweep a minefield, timid and shaking in fear, and afraid that each step might be their last. Nor are we to think that after God has granted us salvation, that it's fully our responsibility to hold on to it, and if we loosen our grip and let it slip, it will fall forever and we'll never be, we'll never be able to hold on to it. No, Paul tells the Philippians in the opening lines of his letter, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And while on earth, Jesus assures his followers that he is the one holding on to them. In John chapter 10, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give, them eternal, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, we shouldn't be in constant fear and trembling that if we make one wrong step, our salvation will be lost forever. What Paul is telling the Philippian church is that as they work out their salvation, the attitude that they must put on is one of fear and trembling. Paul's instruction here is in regards to how it should be worked out. And as we know in life, we're able to work some things out by brute force. Other things require a skilled hand. Some things require intelligence. But this is not so of our salvation. It's to be worked out with fear and trembling. And this concept of fear and trembling is one that's found all throughout the pages of Scripture, but it's most likely a position we don't find ourselves in nearly enough. We come across it in the Psalms, the major and minor prophets, the Gospels, and as we have seen this morning, the epistles. And this idea of fear and trembling is one that's difficult to balance because we can easily swing too far in either direction. On one hand, we're fearful and trembling in sheer terror. The other hand is fearful and trembling in awe and reverence. Both are true in part, but if they remain isolated, they still don't have it right. 
Our God is a a God of power, justice, wrath, and righteous anger. And to stand in his presence would elicit the same response that we see from the prophet Isaiah when he sees the Lord in a vision. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we recognize who God is, it should bring about holy terror. But we also know that he is a gracious, merciful, forgiving, and loving God. He's a good father, and he deserves our worship, praise, adoration, and reverence. One hand separated from the other is not the position to be in. It's when we bring our hands together and have a proper balance of the two that we have arrived in the proper place. Yes, you should be terrified of God's power and perfect holiness. And yes, you should be in awe of his love and amazing plan of redemption. He's the same God, and we can't give him one without the other. So we give him both. We don't leave our hands separated, but we bring them together. We bring them together and praise him and cry out for him for granting us the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive, this thing called salvation. And this position of fear and trembling is one we must find ourselves in as we kneel at the foot of his cross for the first time crying out for mercy, and it's the position we must remain in as we continue to work out the salvation that he has given to us. Once again, not because we're afraid that if our hand loosens his grip that it might slip and we lose it forever. No, but because we recognize how valuable and how precious the Lord's salvation is. And we acknowledge that there's no reason that filthy sinners like me and you should have the privilege of laying our hands on it. Our response should be that of a mother whose hands are shaking for the first time as she reaches out and holds her baby. She isn't nervous that she's going to let it fall, but she recognizes the preciousness and the value of what is in her hands. And friends, what God has laid in the hearts and hands of those who have put their faith and trust in him is of more value than anything else on this earth. So let's make sure that we respond accordingly. And as you've seen thus far, our salvation is something that's to be worked out. It's to be worked out with fear and trembling. And as we move on to verse 13, we see the reason why. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We obey the command to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God's work in us gives us both the ability and the desire to do so. We'll focus first on the ability. And unfortunately, our English wording makes this kind of tricky to see. In verse 12, we're told to work out our salvation. And then in verse 13, we're told to do this because it's God who is at work in you. Well, which one is it that's doing in the working? Is it me or is it God? And as we'll see, the answer is both. Paul uses two different words to describe each of our roles. As mentioned earlier, the work that we are doing is to bring out as a result, to realize in practice, or to mold into fitness. And as we'll see momentarily, God's working in us is much different. As for us, we're working out our salvation with boots on the ground. Every day offers us opportunities to grow closer to Christ or to drift farther away from him. 
We don't need to set off on some sort of spiritual pilgrimage to, to work these things out. Come across this stuff every single day in our interactions with our community, with our family. We're put up against the test to see whether or not we will work out our salvation. And in these circumstances, we must know that we are called to obey the command to work out our salvation. But we also need to understand where the power to live up to such a command comes from. Because it's not from within ourselves. As hard as we might try, we'll never be able to muster up enough spiritual zeal to live in such a way that we're continually being conformed to the image of Christ. We'll grow tired and weary of trying to do this under our own power, for we were never called to, and we're completely incapable of doing this under our own power. We live for Christ through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And we see this in verse 13. It is God who is at work in you. From the Greek, it's God's energeho in us. He's the one causing the effect. He's the one putting us into operation. He is supplying us with the energy to work out the salvation that he has granted us. Colossians 1.29 uses this same word. It can help us better understand how God empowers those that belong to him. Paul says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You see, it's only through his power working in us that we can do anything of value for the Lord. So why is it that we so often try to move forward on his path without him? We're determined that we know the best way, so we leave him behind and try blazing our own trail, only to become lost, entangled in sin, and lose ground that instead could have been gained. Or we become like the foolish Galatians who, after beginning by means of the Spirit, tried to finish by means of the flesh. Church, we know that our spiritual life, spiritual hearing, and spiritual sight were given to us by God. He ushered us into a spiritual kingdom, called us to engage on a spiritual walk, and take part in a spiritual battle. So why on earth would we attempt to do so by physical means? We cannot, so why do we try? God's given us everything we need to live a spirit-filled life in service for him. We must go to him to find the strength and energy we need to work out our salvation because without him we will gain zero ground. So let's try and, let's stop stepping ahead of him and trying to do this by ourselves, but instead commit to, to doing things his way. Because as we know, we have in front of us a race to run. So by the power of God in us, let us run the race with endurance. We know that we've been commanded to shine forth as lights in this dark world. So by the power of God in us, let us shine bright. And as we've seen already, God will empower and energize his own to work out what he and his grace has worked in. The ability to do so comes from him, but he also provides us with the desire to do so. And this should start at the moment of our conversion when we realize what his grace has granted to us. No longer are we in slavery to sin, but instead we now have a new master whose yoke is easy and burden is light. We're no longer sentenced to eternal death, but we're given eternal life. 
We're no longer subject to wasting our lives pursuing empty things, but in its place can find true rest and purpose in God. If we truly grasp the magnitude of what he has done for us, this should be enough in its own to give us the desire and motivation to give over every single part of ourselves to the Lord. This should be enough. But as we know, we're quick to forget and we're quick to wander off. And rather than letting us wander off and never be seen again, God in his grace calls us back. As Matthew Henry says, he gives the whole ability. It is the grace of God which inclines the will to that which is good and enables us to perform it and to act according to our principles. And friends, I hope that each of you have experienced and are currently experiencing this in your own lives. I pray that you've given your life to God and placed your faith in his son and that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you and transforming you from who you used to be to what God has called you to be, holy and righteous. And when you experience this in your own lives, don't be shocked or caught by surprise, for this is the business that the Lord is engaged in. He regenerates degenerate sinners to stop living for themselves and start living for him. And C.S. Lewis compared this process of sanctification to the remodeling of a house. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in such a way that it hurts abominably. You see, he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought that you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And this is the process, friends. The Lord will reveal to us and convict us of sin that needs to be dealt with. He gives us the energy and power to fight against it and overcome it. But we must take up arms and fight. And when we commit to doing this, what we're going to see is that we'll be drawing closer and closer to God and further and further away from our sin. And when we do this, it allows us to engage in the greatest business one could ever take part in. If you take one final look with me at verse 13, it says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We've already seen from this text that we've been called to look to the example of Christ and obediently work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We know that both the ability and the desire to do so is only because of God's work within us. And when we do so, it allows us to stop vainly glorifying ourselves and start to successfully glorify the Lord. Friends, there's no greater purpose to live for than this. We can put an end to only thinking of ourselves, and we can set our minds, our hands, our feet, and our energy towards living for God. We can never repay him for what he's done, but we can give him our whole lives. Hopefully, we have each already done so, but if you haven't, what are you waiting for? Surrender your life over to him, and by his power within us, start working out your salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come to you now and just 
thank you once again for this time to gather and just study and read your word, Lord, and learn more about you and who you are. We thank you for this thing called salvation, and we thank you that even though we're completely unworthy of receiving it, and by ourselves we'd let it slip and fall, that you've granted it to us, and you've also given us the power and the energy to live it out and to see it all the way through to the end. Pray that we'd be a people that would draw close to you, uh, draw close to your word, so that we would be able to live out, we'd be able to work out what you have already worked in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.